Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording and welcome to July on the East End of Long Island. How's everyone doing out there? Holding up? Sweating. Sweating. A little hot out there. Yeah. Avoiding the traffic. Avoiding the traffic. You call it summer. I call it three months of really bad Wi-Fi. <laughs> Wait, I can't hear you. What did you say? I just did an interview with Scott Schwartz from Bay Street Theater and I was like, can you hear me? Uh, oh, I lost you. Uh, oh, wait, wait, move here. Wait, wait. Oh, I got you. No, you're gone. So, um, yeah, it was really frustrating. <laughs> Fridays in particular, it seems like it gets really bad, right? Yeah, I think the weekend, but Friday is like peak. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so we're all tucked away wherever we're hiding out right now, so nobody can find us. But you guys have found us, and um, we're going to talk today about kind of like a post-pandemic sort of comeback to the world. Um, so with that mysterious opening in mind, I'll introduce who all is here. Uh, we have Bill Sutton on the controls once again. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And Brendan J. O'Reilly is sitting in again this week. Hey, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And Joe Shaw is here. And he's not a Simpsons character at the moment, although he's quite obsessed with the Simpsons. I aspire to be a Simpsons character, no question. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Your skin's not yellow enough, but... Nah, nah. And um, I'm Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And joining us this week is a very special guest who's not been on our podcast yet. And that that's is... amazing. He's, a, he's, a, he's also a loyal listener, we were told. Yes, this is Fred Thiel, who happens to be our state assemblyman. So, hey, Fred. Yeah. My first time on the podcast, a, uh, ex- a frequent flyer for Express Sessions, but this is my, my first <laughs> time here. Yeah, absolutely. I, you've got the, what do they do on Saturday Night Live? They give them a, a jacket or something for, I think you've been, you've, you've won, you've earned the jacket already. Yeah, I, I've had a, quite, quite a few appearances there, which thankfully are going back to in person also. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But as far as the podcast, we're not ready to do that yet. We're like, we really like like kind of just doing this from wherever we happen to be. So you're, you're kind of like, you're kind of like uh, Paul Lind of the, of the <laughs> or Charles Nelson Riley. We just, we count on you being there. <laughs> hey, me? No, Fred. Oh, Fred's Fred. always on the It's a first yeah. for me. I've, I've never been compared to Paul Lind before. Yeah. So. You are the center square. Not <laughs> in the best possible sense. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, we thought it would be interesting to have Fred on because um, one of the things that that sort of, you know, as everybody comes out of the pandemic, kind of getting adjusted to real life again. And, and one of the interesting aspects of that is the meeting coverage um, here on the East End of Long Island. Uh, everybody's gotten very accustomed to, to attending Zoom meetings and whatnot. And, um, and now it looks like a lot of meetings are going back in person. And that means some municipalities, I guess, have decided not to continue offering their meetings to the public online. And, um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And Joe, I think I'll let you jump in here because you and Fred have just recently had a conversation about this topic. And I figured you could help direct this a little better than I probably can since yeah. I'm online. Fred and I had a, had a conversation about this very topic uh, that will be published in the press this past week as a Q&A. And uh, 
Fred, you, this is what struck me is this is a conversation we've been having locally quite a bit because as we return to in-person meetings, which I think everybody agrees is preferable, um, we are seeing some of the boards um, dropping any kind of video access for the public. And that includes giving people a chance to participate in meetings uh, remotely, virtually. Um, and we think, and we've just said an editorial recently, uh, that, that it's something that the board should continue to do even as we return. You've said this is a conversation that's taking place in Albany, and there's actually a discussion of changing the state's open meeting law to reflect this and, and the new reality that we have and, and the new options for getting more public access to meetings. Yeah, e even before the, uh, the pandemic uh, emergency ended that the, that the governor had declared, which happened rather abruptly and left local governments scrambling as to, uh, you know, holding meetings, you know, starting in early July. But, you know, even prior to that, uh, you know, there, there started to be discussion once the, the emergency ended, you know, uh, what about this new technology that, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic really seldom if ever was, was used. The law really, as it ex exists, really has a very narrow opportunity to be able to use video conferencing. And, uh, you know, already there's about, I'd say about 10 bills that have been introduced in the legislature and uh, uh, a lot of discussion, not just locally, but in Albany. And uh, be because of that, you know, uh, my committee, the local governments committee and, and the assembly government operations committee, we're gonna be holding hearings in the fall. Uh, this is one of those situations where uh, technology and reality have, have outrun uh, the law. And, uh, you know, there's been benefits certainly that have accrued from uh, allowing the public greater opportunity to participate and the law needs to reflect the ability of, of people to do that. The other thing that you mentioned also, uh, you know, is that a lot of local governments are going back to in-person meetings. Well, part of that is the law because the law only has a very narrow opportunity for using video conferencing. But it's also that, you know, especially in the villages, they don't have the technology in Village Hall uh, to be able to do this. And, you know- And that was example, early on. Yeah, early East on, that town, was for example, they've got LTV, they've been able, they'll be able, they have the technology available, but not every village does. So there's two parts to this. One is the law and the second is, is the villages now that you're gonna have an in-person location uh, that for them to have the technology in that location to allow for, uh, for video conferencing and remote participation. So it's, so, it's com so it's combining the two because I, I think during the height of the pandemic, <clears throat> the, the meetings weren't held at village hall or, or town hall. It was, it was Zoom meetings, everybody in their, in their uh, kitchen or, or living room. But now you have the, the live meetings as the villages and towns um, you know, adopted that technology. And I think they all did a great job very quickly during the pandemic to be able to, to push these meetings out over Zoom or, or whatever platform. Now they have to develop that technology to do both at the same time, to have the live meeting, but then also broadcast it um, you know, uh, over the internet. And I think we've been a little critical about them going back to live meetings and, and, and moving away from, um, from broadcast meetings. But, but again, the technology has to catch up, I guess. And, I, and Fred, Fred you, you and I, when we talked about this, you said something very interesting, which is there's two aspects to this that we need to talk about. One is members of the boards participating via video conferencing 
virtually, remotely. That's something the law does currently allow. It allowed it even prior to the pandemic under some circumstances, but I think the governor allowed it a little more broadly, correct? Yeah, the existing, I mean, the law that's in place was, it's 20 years old and it was designed to address a, a very specific circumstance. New York being a big state, when you have things like the New York Power Authority having a meeting out in Niagara Falls, some of those board members wanted to be able to participate remotely instead of getting in, in their, you know, or flying or getting in their car to drive from Long Island to Buffalo for a 45 minute meeting. Uh, so there was this very narrow exception that really contemplated that situation. You know, our current situation with, you know, video conferencing being readily, uh, more readily available and to allow, you know, people to, to participate from home, et cetera. The law didn't ever contemplate that. So yeah, the law, the, the, the law as it stands now is it's 20 years old and it's really narrowly focused to a particular situation. That isn't the reality we're dealing with now. So that's one aspect of this issue. The other aspect is what we were talking about, which is public access to these meetings, which during the pandemic, the public meetings were opened up by video conferencing. It gave people a new ability to, to attend meetings virtually and even to participate and provide feedback. And Brendan, this has been, uh, we've seen it all over the place that it's meant a whole lot more people participating in government. I think that's fair to say, right? My past experience covering regulatory board meetings is that rarely is there anyone there besides reporters, a couple homeowners, and a couple architects and lawyers. And now you go to a meeting where there's applications that aren't even controversial, and the Zoom room is just full. You'll see that there's 40 or 50 people there for a meeting that on a regular week you might see 10 people at. So neighbors, they get that notice in the mail that says you have to be at a certain building at a certain time at a certain night. And they say, well, I could have dinner at home and have a pleasant evening, or I could go to Village Hall and sit around and wait for every other application to get through, and then finally have my chance to speak three minutes on the application. People didn't really want to do that. You tell people, you could do this from the comfort of your own home, play the meeting in, your background, in the background while you eat dinner, wait for the application that you actually want to speak about, come up, listen in, speak at the meeting, and then you just turn off Zoom when you're done instead of having to drive home in the dark. So that appeal during the pandemic, we saw it, we saw it work, we saw it in action. And now we're going back to you must be there in person. You can't watch it live. There's no way to participate remotely. And in many cases, I'm finding with villages, they are not recording and posting to YouTube or posting anywhere or posting to uh, to you know government access to be able to catch up in the meeting after the fact. And for me as a reporter, where I was getting used to on one Thursday a month, watching a West Hampton Beach Village meeting, a Sag Harbor Village meeting, and a Southampton Village meeting, all from the same night, because I could catch up on them after the fact. Now I can't catch up on them after the fact, because at least two out of those three are not giving me the option to watch any sort of a recording. And it's a perfect example of it's the necessity that came about because of the crisis of the pandemic. But now, as we start into the post-pandemic world, we have limited resources. That was a way to allow us with our limited resources to virtually attend almost every one of these meetings without 
Brendan having to drive to Sag Harbor without one of our reporters who lives in East Hampton having to drive to West Hampton Beach. Um, that's that's a limitation on our ability to keep tabs. And you can imagine how that trickles down through the rest of the public. And, and I, I hasten to add here that from the state's open meetings law, uh, right up front, the, the whole point of the law, according to the legislation, that it's essential to the maintenance of a democratic society that the public business be performed in an open and public manner. And, and that's an evolving uh, concept, I think. And, and I think open and public now has to include some aspect of, of the virtual setting, I think, Fred. And Yeah, I, and, and the part that you're talking about, that Brendan's talking about, about fostering public participation, I think there's almost universal agreement that the you know that we should be utilizing this technology to let more part people participate with some rules for local governments like you know if 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 there is if if you are video conferencing and and it's being recorded and you're recording it you have to record it and you have to post it so so people have access to it so but but the aspect of this that you're talking about as far as public participation and fostering public participation that's not going to be the controversial part of this. I think there's agreement on that. The, 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 the harder issue is when you're talking about the members of the public body and how much are you, uh, of virtual or remote participation are you going to allow board members? And is it different if it's the zoning board versus an elected board that can legislate? And what are you going to allow there? Because you know, the, there's always a yin and a yang. On the one side is public participation, and we want to foster that. But the other side is transparency and accountability and the ability of members of the public, you know, to in person petition their, their, their elected officials and their government and reporters being able to see them in person and ask them questions, which is hindered if you've got five board members, you know, uh, having a public meeting each from their own living room. So, um, you know, that was permitted during the pandemic. I don't think we want to permit that in the post-pandemic world because there still needs to be an in-person component and probably at least an in-person quorum present. You know, if, if somebody's away on vacation and they're a board member or somebody's sick and they can participate, I, you know, I, I, I see the law trying to make allowances for that, but you don't want, you know, suddenly the, well, the government is all on a screen and you can't see them in person either. That's actually, you know, to, to take the other side, uh, our good friend, uh, Francis Genovese, who has written an article, a letter to the editor on this topic, and she would make the point that the virtual meetings were awful and that a return to in-person governance is the appropriate thing. Um, I understand that point of view that, that the, the give and take in a virtual setting is very different, but I, I feel like it's, there's no reason to choose. We can have both. And, I, and if the technology is the only thing standing in the way uh, between doing it, uh, that's a small hurdle to yeah, get over, I, I feel like. In I think it's technology and the law needs to be adapted. The, the, the law is not mm -hmm. up to date. So th those are the, the two hurdles. Uh, you know, the, I think the law, you know, we will have uh, a new law in place the next time when the legislature goes back next year after we've had hearings. Um, and, you know, the, this is an active conversation. In it Albany, is, huh? It's a very active, it, you know, it, it really started during the pandemic and it has never ended. Um, you know, I think the only, you know, the only regret is that the governor didn't give us all more 
notice that he was ending the emergency so that we, we might have been able to plan a little bit better. But um, yeah, it, it's, you know, expect hearings in the fall and uh, legislation in the 2020, 2022 session. So I'm curious what the municipalities themselves think. Are they are they reluctant to continue broadcasting the meetings just because of the technological piece, or are there other reasons that they prefer to not offer the meetings um, online or in person? Like, what is their what have we heard about their preferences and any reluctance or? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of calls from elected officials, and and they all want to be able to do um, more. Uh, video conferencing, more remote meetings. Uh, in particular, uh, Mayor Lockheim in Sagaponic, as uh, you know, uh, is, and, and uh, the villages in particular. Um, and and I, I think there's a couple of reasons why our local governments generally like it. Yes, you know, some of them may have to, you know, not the town so much, but the villages may need to make some arrangements as far as technology goes. But a lot of towns and villages, particularly villages, they have difficulty um, recruiting people for these boards. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fact that somebody doesn't have to be in person all the time, you know, gives them with the flexibility, I think, that expands the pool of people, particularly in a community where two thirds of the residences here east of the canal are, are second homes. And uh, so I, I think it might increase the pool. and. Uh, you know, there's some cost effectiveness for this too, even for applicants, people that are going to zoning boards and planning boards, you know, especially in a community like ours where somebody hires a, a nationally renowned architect who they got to fly in from San Francisco to mm. attend the Sagaponic planning board meeting where they could do that, you know, uh, remotely. So there's, I, I think, you know, the, the there's, there isn't resistance to adapting to this new reality. It's, it's more a question of how are we going to do it? And we need to think through it and identify and, and, and try to avoid the unintended consequences. I think that's, it's not resistance. It's just, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, we, we create a system where there, where there isn't unintended consequences. And we do balance transparency and, and open government at the same time with public participation. Speaking to opening up the pool of who can participate on these boards, I'm wondering if there's a downside to that too. I'm not trying to suggest that anybody was less effective at their job, but there was a series of regulatory board meetings that I attended where the chair was in an entirely different state. So now when you have a chair who has the option of not even living in the community for more than half the year, what, is that a bad thing for the community where suddenly the chair now can spend nine months of the year living someplace else? Well, you, you, you know, to be on these boards, you've, you've got to be, you know, basically you got to be registered to vote there. And of course, that's a whole issue in, in and of itself. So, no, I think you want community based people on these boards. But, you know, if somebody, I mean, we live in a world, you know, especially on the East End where people have multiple residents. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they view this as home, but they have other, other commitments. So I think, you know, it, can that be abused? Yes. But I think you want to, you want to increase that in the pool. The other thing that, you know, a colleague mentioned to me, cause I was a initially a little bit resistant to this for some of the reasons that you said is, 
you know, as far as increasing the pool, you, you know, you might have potential board members that that are single moms or, you know, are in a situation they can't go to town hall, you know, but they could participate from home. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of aspects for it and that's, you know, to it. And that's why, you know, I think we need the public hearings because, you know, I've already heard from a whole host of different stakeholders, whether they be local governments or good government groups or the media, you know, different aspects of this that I hadn't even thought of. And I, I think that's why you have a public hearing. You try to vet out as many of those things as you can, and then ultimately come up with a, a bill that, that finds the right balance that allows greater pub public participation, you know, in a responsible way increases, you know, maybe the pool of people that can participate as board members. But, um, you, you know, you don't want, uh, um, you, you know, technology that, you know, there, there's, uh, there can be unintended consequences. You know, Super Jay Schneiderman, Supervisor Schneiderman mentioned to me, you know, you, you get a subject like maybe, you know, uh, you know, opting out of marijuana where, you know, suddenly, you know, on your Zoom call, you may have a thousand people from Colorado who now want to participate, right? I mean, how do you deal with that? So, it needs to be thought through, which is why we're going to have the hearings. But uh, you know, I, I think the general goals are more public participation uh, and you know, reflecting this new reality as far as you know how much you allow uh, members of boards to uh, you know to to participate remotely and how you do that. I can see some members of boards in some circumstances using the virtual access to isolate themselves a little bit too from criticism. And as you said, not having to answer questions afterwards, maybe being able to dodge uh, people they don't want to talk to, including the media. So that, yeah, there, there is a, there's yeah, a downside. So you you have to think about all those things, you know, public participation is easy. We want as many people as possible. Um, and, but the, on, on the, uh, you know, on, on the, what the public body and what members, how much virtual participation are you going to allow there? You got to find the balance there between, you know, transparency, accountability, and, and again, the public's ability and right to be able to confront their, their public officials. I, I think there's ways, ways to do that. And, and obviously the hearings would help, but I think we were talking about it the other day that you could have, if, if somebody wanted to speak to the board and engage in a back and forth with the board, then they would have to show up, um, you, you know, at the public meeting, but then maybe you have people who are there virtually can type a question and, you know, and, and submit a submit a written question that might be answered or might not be answered by the board, depending on, on, on the question and, you know, and, and, you know, and the person, I, I think there's certainly ways to go about that. Agreed. Uh, you know, I, I think you know, all these problems are solvable. Um, you just need to identify them and vet them and, you know, allow, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's legislation where I think, you know, you, you know, you just need to be careful that, that you don't have the unintended consequences. I mean, I can think back to some town board meetings I covered where you had, you know, 40 people come in and, and all wanted to speak for their, for their three minutes that turned into five minutes. And I can remember seeing the frustration on the town board members faces and a lot of the public people too but that's that's the whole that's what you you want that i mean so so it's frustrating and maybe you don't get to everything on the agenda but that's that's what it um that's what it should be that's that's democracy that's you want know, you want people to be able to talk about a, a, a subject before the board local support comes from the law firm of toomey latham shea kelly dubin and Cordoraro. 
in these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. So, do any of your colleagues think this is not a good idea? Again, I, I, I don't. I, I haven't heard a lot of people who don't think we should change the law. That we need to adapt the law to reality and mm-hmm. what exists. Uh, I, I suspect the, the the discussion is going to be over. You know, the devil's in the details, and that is, um, you know, again, you know, particularly with regard to the to the role of the public body you know, what, what the specific rules should be. And uh, so uh, I anticipate there's going to be a bill. We're going to pass something. I, I just, you know, it's, it's hard to know yet what, what, what that bill is going to look like. Speaking of bills, you, you've got your uh, legislation for the community housing fund on the governor's desk, right? It's, how long is it going to sit there? How far down in the strata of stuff on the governor's desk is it? Is it, is it two thirds of the way down? Is it, is it right on top? What, what do you think here? And what do you think? Is he going to sign it this time? Well, first of all, I mean, we passed 900 bills this year and, it, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's like being in college, you know, all the studying happens, you know, all the bill passage happens at the end. So <laughs> uh, they, they can't all go over at once and have the 10 day clock running. Um, you know, my, so whether it, you know, it goes over early or it goes over late, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it doesn't much matter because I think that the towns, you know, it's, it's getting too late to do a referendum this year anyway. They're contemplating a, a 2022 referendum. So it will go over between now and the end of the year. Um, I, I don't know when. The, the real question is, is the governor going to sign it because he vetoed it uh, two years ago? And, you know, this is a different time and a different place. Uh, the governor was vetoing every tax bill in sight in 2019 because he was sending a message uh, to the state legislature, you know, don't give me any new tax bills, state or local, you know. Um, but obviously the pandemic has changed that, uh, you know, we increased taxes in New York State by $4 billion as part of the budget this year to help deal with the pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I met with the governor's council after the veto and before the pandemic hit. Um, and they basically were just looking for more information. So in the interim, you know, there's been a countywide housing study done. Uh, each of the towns have done their housing study. We're gonna provide the governor with all of that information. The other thing is it's just changed conditions. I mean, there was a housing crisis before the pandemic. Uh, now it's a five alarm fire, uh, you know, and it's in the papers every single day about you know, the, the, how housing has become unaffordable. So uh, I, I think the circumstances, you know, you know, I, I think it's, it's a different set of circumstances that make it much more likely that the governor will sign the bill. We're not gonna leave any stone unturned. Um, you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna be mounting a campaign to the governor's office from, from whether it's local governments or civics or local business people 
you know, all I hear from, whether it's the hospital or Main Street businesses or town hall, they can't hire people because people can't afford to live here. And they don't want to sit in traffic for an hour and a half for a job here when they can get the same job up west. Does the governor know the special circumstances that we have out here right now and the fact that we had the influx of people? And, and is the governor even aware of all of that? I mean, he's he's obviously aware of the East End. He's out here from time to time. Well, listen, we're taking nothing for chance. We're going to make him aware of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I suspect he's, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention. I mean, um, you know, the issues on the East End during the pandemic, including housing, haven't just gotten the attention of Newsday and, you know, the weekly papers such as, as yourself, your, your paper, but, you know, it seems like on a regular basis, I'm getting a call from this national publication or that national magazine, all who, you know, you know want to talk about the East End. Unfortunately, they don't always get it right. It, they, they have a kind of a one-dimensional view of what the East End is, uh, which they focus on. I mean, there was one story, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I have the, 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 the name of the publication, I, if I remember it right, so I won't mention it. But I mean, they were talking about, you know, all the issues with uh, septic systems out here and septic upgrades. And you would have thought that, you know, because of the pandemic, there was sewage flowing in the streets. And, uh, <laughs> of the Hamptons. So, you know, listen, some of it, people, you know, they, they, they like to play the celebrity angle of the Hamptons and they like to talk about, uh, you know, the excesses of, of some of the people that live here, but uh, so they kind of miss the point, but, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're going to get all that information to the governor's office. There, it, whatever decision he makes, it won't because he, he doesn't have uh, the, the information. So, so Fred, if, if and when the legislation passes, and I think it's important legislation, are the towns going to be ready? I mean, have you, have you had discussions with the towns and, and what kind of programs they would want to implement with, um, you know, with this influx of, of money coming in, potentially? Fred, maybe you could ex just very briefly say what the legislation would do. Yeah, I, I mean, this legislation is basically the sister of the Community Preservation Fund, except it's devoted to housing. It would add a, an extra half a percent onto the rate of the tax, but it would also increase the exemption levels. So, you know, roughly, uh, I'd say about 40 to 45 percent of all transactions would pay the same or less. Um, this is a tax that Bernie Sanders would love because the millionaires and billionaires are going to pay the tax. I mean, that, that's really where the money, and rightfully so. They're the ones driving up the prices, making it unaffordable. There's a rough justice to that. Uh, but we're, we're increasing the rate, uh, but, but also increasing the exemptions to mitigate the impact uh, on, you know, at least 40% uh, of all the transactions. But that would create a, a revenue stream for the towns then to use in the same way that the CPF created a revenue stream. Exactly. And, and that revenue stream annually would be, well, I'm not going to use 2021 because we've generated more money in the Community Preservation Fund in, in five months than we generate all year in a normal year. But if you just took kind of an average year without 2021, it would generate probably 20 to $25 million across the East End for affordable housing, which you know, I, I think collectively five Eastern towns every year, uh, it would take, you know, they don't spend that much now, probably in, in five years. Uh, 
So, you know, the, the bill doesn't, you know, they're allowed to do whatever they can, they're doing now. Uh, it's just allowing them to do more of it. But that's back to Bill's question. And are the towns ready? I, I, I think they are. And, you know, first of all, I've met, you know, consistently with the towns throughout this process. Some of it went a little sideways during the pandemic, but, uh, you know, the towns have been looped into this legislation from the beginning. They helped draft it. Uh, they made some critical modifications that were that were good. Um, you know, if the governor signs it, they will basically have a a you know uh, 11 months to do the planning and to uh, to have the referendum. So they'll have a year to get it up and running uh, and and to design their system. You know, they did it for the community preservation fund. Had to to, to really design a whole new system for that. So. They've been part of the process from the beginning, and I think they'll be up to the task. And each town and village would get to develop their own plan to utilize the money. Is that correct? Or each each town, the, just the towns, villages would have to work with okay. their town, just like they do with the community preservation fund. There's a solution. Fred's got it figured out. <laughs> well, you know, on housing, I don't think there's any one silver bullet, but what I think is key to this legislation, the one thing we didn't talk about, and I'll, I'll finish with this, is that you know, the town spent a lot of time building new housing to try to solve the housing crisis. We're never going to be able to catch up that way. You know, we're, 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 we're already at a density where the roads are full and, and uh, you know, we're, we're infrastructure is, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is stretched to the limit. We have to make some of the existing housing stock affordable. And what this bill does is allow, uh, you know, financial assistance to first time home buyers so that, you know, you, you know, they don't have the down payment, you know, this would provide them with the down payment with financial assistance. So uh, the key here, I think, is making existing housing, you know, more within reach to people than just trying to build new housing. It's going to remove a big obstacle because everybody always says, if we had the money. Um, so now you'll have some yeah. money to spend. And I think the challenge then becomes how creative can you be? And, and, and as you've said, every one of the big issues out here is interconnected. The traffic is interconnected with the lack of affordable housing, which is all interconnected with the impact on the environment. And these, these things are all intertwined in a way that makes nothing a magic bullet. There's no easy solution, but it'll give us some resources to at least try and take a run at a solution at some small solution of the affordable housing problem. No, no matter what meeting I go to or what issue people want to talk about, at some point, whatever the other issue is, housing and transportation end up being on the table, you know, affecting things, whether it's providing health care or uh, it's, you know, it's the economy or whatever, it always comes down to those two issues. Education always comes down to those two issues. Six degrees of affordable housing. Pretty much. Everything is always <laughs> traced back, yeah. Stay in your house and off the roads this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should assign everybody, everybody a one-hour window when they're allowed on the roads. <laughs> and it can be lottery. You know, I'm not unfair about this. Everybody gets an equal shot at the middle of the day. But you have to be able to, you only get one hour a day to be on the roads in your car. If it's two o'clock in the morning, I'm sorry. And if you're retired, there's really special circumstances and limitations. You do odd number license plates and even number license plates. Even numbers get Mondays and Wednesdays. Well, and I'm only in my car one hour a day now that I'm back from Albany anyway. But unfortunately, that one hour is the time it takes me to get from Sag Harbor to Bridgehampton. Right. So. Hey, by the way, why were they working on the road yesterday? 
the turnpike. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> oh. Here you go, Fred. You come out. And this- yeah, I, I know on 114, National Grid thought this was a great time to be putting in the extended gas mains. Do we know anybody at National Grid that we can tell not to send work crews out at 9 o'clock in the morning on weekdays? On a July? <laughs> I, I, it's just uh, on, on Montauk Highway coming coming east in the mornings, you'll see tree, tree cutting crews setting up at nine o'clock in the morning. Like that's still rush hour, guys. Yeah, I guess they would want to go to the beach for uh, their lunch. So they don't want to do that in the winter. They want fair to point, fair point. They can... All right. Is our work done here? I think it is. Well done, Fred. Good, good debut. Thanks, guys. It's good to talk to you. Good to see, uh, you know, actually see you even if it's on a screen. So, <laughs> well, we'll uh, see you on the road. Yeah, no doubt. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.